hang out. Yeah, we're great. just hanging out. We're just hanging out. Yes. So it's a it's a special. I'm gonna do intros because that's how that's how I do intros on my show. So, what's up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of Nerdy Bits. That's special. And have another episode of Bounty Board. See, I'm doing a bad. It's because it's so cold. God damn it. Anyway, uh, another episode of Bounty Board, but this one's special. This time, I, Caleb, Lubwub, your host, have a guest who is the one and only. Say your name. Dan. <laughs> the one and only Dan. Uh, and yeah, Dan. The only one. The only one. <laughs> if anybody else has said their name is Dan, they're a liar and you should distance yourself from them. Because this yep. is the truest Dan. Mm-hmm. Um, no. uh, D- Dan, uh, you may know me better as Dr. Dan, the Pancake Man. I'm the co-founder and creator of Dan Cakes, the world's first professional pancake art company. And uh, what else do I do? I do all kinds of other stuff. I'm making a board game. Yep. The, the, <laughs> the first and only founder of the world's first professional pancake company is... That's a byline not many people get. I'm, literally, it's a byline nobody else has. So you're just backing up your own credentials of being the truest Dan. Oh, hey, I got a patent. That's a, that's I got a patent. You did do that. That's new. You did I do did that. Get a patent. Just yes. want to point that out. Forgot I was looking at the screen, and then there it is. It's right there. Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> we will definitely talk about that. So you do pancake art, and it's dope. Uh-huh. But you also are making a board game. Which you kind of brushed under the rug when you just listed your curriculum vitae as if it was unimportant. What's up? Camera crashed. <laughs> yeah, your camera is coming in and out. It's okay. This is an audio medium. So whether or not I can see you is really of no consequence. I just came here to sabotage your editing process. You just came here to look at my fancy lights. That's all you did. Yeah. And, uh, and if you get to sabotage something along the way, who would say no to double the fun? Right. I'm glad we were on the same wavelength. <laughs> Don't worry. I, I'm I'm on the same page. Uh, so yeah, you're making a board game, and you just got a patent. Those, those are two things that mm-hmm. seem unrelated to most people, but in this specific circumstance, they're not. That's right. I'm one of those bastards that got a board game patent. Yes, putting yourself up on a pedestal next to uh, companies uh, infamous as they may be, like Magic the Gathering. And or or uh, the one that uh, that's been in the news more recently is uh, who who developed the Nemesis system? Warner Brothers Interactive did. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know about that? Oh yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, I know I've about been... the system, but is it is it is it newsworthy right now? Well, because they're trying to patent it. They're trying to patent the Nemesis system to make it so that other people can't use it. And uh, one of my favorite uh, video game reviewers, Jimquisition. Um, I guess it's, they're not really a video game reviewer. They're just video game video essayist. Yeah. yeah. Um, Jimquisition did a video about why you shouldn't patent board game mechanics and why it makes, or why you shouldn't patent game mechanics and why it makes you a bad person. And I'm just sitting there. <laughs> You're just sitting there like, oh no, <laughs> it's me. Hey, look, it me. Oh no, he left the call again. Where'd you go? I didn't mean to make it mad. Oh my gosh. Oh, hey, there you are. Ah. <laughs> Is it? Your camera just really doesn't want to participate. But yeah, so there I was sitting on the couch thinking, ah, I'm the guy that got the patent. And now, sorry, I don't, I don't. <laughs> and try, now, trying to and pick now up you feel less about cool <laughs> about it because, because people are like, it's shitty. Well, so what's, what's Jim Quisition's, um, what was his argument? Well, basically the same thing that, um, 
I mean, it makes sense. The, just the idea that patents, especially when a giant company like Warner Brothers or, or any anybody that actually has access to capital um, tries to patent something, it's not really... It's basically limiting the possibility, the creative possibilities within the space, within the industry. Like if you patent something, yeah. so you're basically saying, you see this idea here? If you use it, we'll kill you or you know, <laughs> you out of or, existence. Or, or do or our best to try at least. Yeah. Sure. Right. And um, of course, I don't have any access to lots of money. So my logic in trying to get the patent was to protect myself from those companies. Um as we grow our company which i'm like you know like I, I think it's pretty i think it's pretty reasonable i think people for the most part even if people are like oh, i can't patent game mechanics so i was like yeah but what if i'm like super chill about all the people that aren't the brothers using it but i use their magic against them yeah sure sure what if i a small guy decide yeah. to use a little bit of the titan's power to make myself stronger right, right. <laughs> that's never gone wrong protect uh, myself from i mean because my big fear so Anthromancer, which is the game, um, oh, yes. funded successfully on Kickstarter last year. And as a game, it is it's it's a fairly simple mechanically, it's fairly simple mechanically, the board game itself, but the product is this whole ambitious. <laughs> we gotta we should just not do a video call. That's what we should do, since your camera's taking a giant shit. Yeah, that's a good idea. Just make it so that your PC is not trying to connect to camera. Okay. And Just edit all this out. This is all good cutting room floor. <laughs> it's fine. This is um, this is how the magic happens. This is how the magic. <laughs> uh, so okay. So Anthromancer. Anthromancer is a it's a board game. It has fairly simple mechanics at the core. It's just a board, a deck of cards, a couple. And you can play a game that's sort of like chess meets poker. But the overall product is a lot more elaborate than that. It's definitely been sort of a, a spiritual experience for me developing it. Like, I there are there you can use the whole thing as a tarot system, and once you open that can of worms, you start diving into things like the power of symbolism and what magic really is, and um, the essence of the human consciousness and the Tao. And I, I learn. I, I I think one of the things you and I have bonded over is that you have. Um, hexagram tattoo. I do. And uh, yeah, I read the I Ching as research for Anthromancer and it influenced a lot of the ideas that ultimately went into it. And so my fear and part of the reason I felt justified in getting a patent for it is that you could strip away all the cool cryptic magic shit that's going to alienate, you know, like wine moms and <laughs> have yeah, a perfectly sure. sellable product. Something that would be it, it is it is novel and different and easy to learn that if you had a giant company with a giant marketing budget behind it, you could take all of the shit I really care about out of it, sell it to people, and then it would not have the cultural impact I want it to have. Because what I want for Anthromancer is to force people that if they want to play this game, you have to kind of like use this product that looks this certain way. And you don't have to like teach yourself anything you don't have to go any deeper than you want to but in order for what i want it to do to work you have to have it in your presence and sit with it sure does that make sense yeah yeah absolutely so and yeah like, so my, and a wine I, mom would turn this into a uh 
Oh, I, I, to, <laughs> I was gonna say I was gonna say like a real housewives of the Midwest board game, but um that works too. Well yeah, I mean it's it's very it's got a lot of occult imagery, a lot of sacred geometry. The logo of the game is a basically a, a fancy blue pentagram. Yeah. So like you know, uh, I I definitely anticipate that well and I guess it's it's sort of maybe it's I just feel so that it's patented, knowing that the, the core mechanic of the game cannot be reproduced by somebody without my authorization, my legal, at least in the United States, my United States legal authority to say, hey, actually, the government says that's mine. Like, yeah, as sure. long as I have to have a government, I'm trying to use it. <laughs> exactly. And you're not the first to do this. As, as we have already mentioned, Warner Brothers, I didn't realize they were trying to patent the Nemesis system. That's Garbage. Yeah, it's pretty. It's pretty shitty. That's shitty. But um, you're not the first, I guess so. even tabletop or card trading card game to to do it because Magic the Gathering also mm-hmm. patented a mechanic, and not as many people I feel were upset about it. But they also did it like 15 years ago. Right? Yeah, 20 Magic, years ago. I think it was 20. Um, yeah. maybe maybe. Well, shit, it's probably 30. It's um, probably older, actually. Yeah. God. Um, it was like what 94. Five, something like that but magic they they patented the tapping mechanic yeah um at least that's what our our patent lawyer told us um i've heard some people dispute that then there's some people that are convinced you you can't patent board game mechanics and uh that's that's apparently not true like i found out <laughs> as evidenced by my patent um but the 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 mechanic that magic patented was the idea of tapping a tapping for mana like the idea of tilting a card on its side specifically as a way to consume one of a resource, you know? So it's not, it's not turning the card on its side. It's specifically turning the card on its side. a resource has been spent that they patented and sure. um, they defended it. Uh, I think like two or three times over the course of their growth. And now they're the, you know, most widely played card game in the world. Um, I don't know if I would want it. Be that success. I mean, be cool. I don't want to have to be like a vindictive capitalist bastard to be that successful, <laughs> sure. and I don't think I'm willing to do that. But again, I am glad that if if Wizards of the Coast tries to copy what I'm doing and tries to go around me, I like having the authority to stop them because I don't trust them. I sure. don't trust big corporations. They become so big and powerful because they eat things, and yeah. I really prefer not. <laughs> yeah, and Wizards of the Coast has been. Um, kind of goofing, sh- kind of on my shit list for like the last publishing, uh, year and a half. Publishing wa- Walking Dead, Magic: The Gathering cards, and and being generally shitty and discriminatory. Exactly. Yeah, there's a couple of uh, a couple of stories that came out. I think last summer about people uh-huh. of color working there and just being like, yeah, every single thing we tried to suggest or like bat down because of its apparent clear and apparent racism was kind of laughed at and we kind of got boxed into projects that never became a thing so that we would be out of the way i was like oh cool so i should play something other than D &D." luckily luckily the world is full of very good tabletop uh role-playing experiences kind of a crowdfunding has really blown the lid off of board games tabletop games video games yeah, yeah, it's been great. And I think Kickstarter was a as a big, yeah, like you were mentioning, a big, hey, we can make this ourselves if you think it's cool enough. And people were like, yep. oh, shit, <laughs> yeah, let's do that. 
There's a game called Dialect that I think was a Kickstarter project. Dialect, I, I bartered with ads for them. I've never played it, but I've seen that they've won a lot of awards and I've heard good things about it. I'm familiar with the brand because I see so many ads. Yeah, yeah. So there's a there's a D and uh, an actual play podcast called Friends of the Table that I just started listening to, and for like the world building of their most recent season, they started. They don't play one tabletop game for a season of like narrative. They'll jump through different ones, whatever best serve the current, you know, narrative. Pretty interesting. Yeah. And so they start their world building with dialect and it's like basically about how language is built and destroyed over time. And that's that's how they like, and that's like how they built out a bunch of world building for where they're going to be. And I was like, that's fucking dope. Like, I want to play that just because that sounds cool, but doing that as the beginning of your you know, friend group tabletop session sounds fucking awesome too. Yeah, like starting with with a language game, language, language is magic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the the yeah, it says it's uh what the game's about an isolated community, their language, and what it means for that language to be lost. You'll tell the story of isolation by building that language. New words will come, and fuck, it just sounds good. It just sounds good. So don't play D&D if you don't have to, because there's a billion other things that are fucking yeah, cool. You don't have to. You, you don't, don't have to. I understand why people are attached to it. Sure. And I think that it's cool when people are like, oh, we're going to use the rule set, but all of the lore books can get fucked. <laughs> like, that's fine. I actually, I learned, I learned a, a new concept recently that just came to mind. Um, the concept of historical protocols. You know what that means? No, I do not. So I learned this in the in the context for into cryptocurrency lately, which maybe we can talk about that in a bit. But sure. um, there was a guy that was explaining the significance of Bitcoin in terms of historical protocols, um, and a historical protocol, just uh, at least the way he outlined it, was that it's basically the idea that um, certain things take root in culture, and even if they're not the best iteration or the best possible iteration or the most efficient or anything like that. Once they take root, it's really, really hard to change it. Um, the, one of the metaphors he used, the examples he used, was the way that tr- railroad tracks are still spaced according to the size of Roman horses' asses because of chariot wheels, right? Like, hmm. it might not be the most efficient. You might be able to get more people on a train if you make the train, the railroad tracks wider or something like that, or maybe there's a better way to do it. But it doesn't matter because that's how it's being – how it's being – that's how all the other infrastructure was built up around it. And if you wanted to change it now, it would just be extraordinarily expensive. I think with D&D, it's kind of a similar thing. Like it was such the vanguard of tabletop RP- what a tabletop RPG was that for the rest of human history, <laughs> it's going to be, be comparing- a touchstone. Yeah. Yeah. People are going to be comparing new versions, new ways of doing it. That. And- yeah. It's, it's interesting when you think of like, uh, whatever the creation be, um, you know, games or music or film or art, there's always those like pillars that end up becoming whole a wholly different thing from what their intention was, right? Because most of these things mm-hmm. are created as like, I got to create something. It's my expression. Boom, here it is. But then like you're saying, like, there's no doubt in my mind D&D is going to be the framework for getting a a role-playing game started for decades to to come, right? And, like, who knows what that is in video games now, but that, that was apparent when 
Wolfenstein and Doom came out. People were like, oh shit, first person shooters are going to be a thing. And now we're 30 years yeah. into first person shooters and they're still, still they're still the king. Yeah. Uh, well, and I think, I think one of the things that's really crazy to me is that like, there's still lots of really beautiful AAA, uh, you know, video game role-playing games that you, if you open the console, you can see they're still rolling, you know, like, yeah, 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 for sure. They're still building their systems, even their automated computer systems, with the model of RPG underpinning it. And it's like, yeah. okay, that's pretty wild. Yeah, the, one of the wildest stories of that I think I've ever heard um, was that Call of Duty Modern Warfare 4, or Call of Duty 4 Modern Warfare, the first, like, the big one, <clears throat> built this entire multiplayer <laughs> on pen and paper first. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think we we talked about that in the park yeah, at one point. I think we did. Cause yeah, because it was like iterating our answer. Yeah, it was one of the weirdest. Because I, I looked into it and it was like, yeah, they built like each gun and were like rolling dice based on how many rounds you could fire and what they hit and like just doing all of it on pen and paper and then going, okay, this works, this doesn't work, adapting it and then plugging that into a computer so that the computer could do it all for them. Um, yeah, and I thought that was wild, but like, there you go. There's like still people using analogs to test things, because as much as digital may be faster or stronger or more, you know, ubiquitous, it's still maybe not the best way to do something for your own headspace. Um, well, yeah, I think it's it's digital like video game development is just so arduous. Yeah. Like you can get a lot of ideas on a piece of paper very quickly. You can implement very slowly if you're trying to program it into a video, into a computer. And so yeah, it makes a lot of sense. You know, I know I shoot, like I would rather have a my disposal than a laptop most times, just because like I can really easily draw a picture of what I'm thinking in a journal you know, if I'm using a Word document or something, I'm going to have to open a whole other piece of software and know how to use it and do all this stuff. Like, right. you can do lots with computers, but it just takes so much time compared yeah. to the actual creative iteration where it's like, throw this at the wall, see what sticks, and then figure out how to program it. Yeah, exactly. I built my first um, Choose Your Own Adventure game on paper first. There was a, there's a website called Inkle back in the day. I think it's still around. I'm pretty sure it's still around. But... uh you um, can build your own like text-based choose-your-own-adventures through there. It's like a whole system. You type in a thing, and it gives you responses that you can add or subtract, and then they go different places. And I remember thinking, like, I'm going to do this for an interactive fiction class, and then starting it and being like, I need a poster board. And I drew, right. I drew the web of, like, yeah. this conversation goes here and here and here. And then I went back into the tool with a roadmap and went, okay, this goes to this, goes to this, and it made everything a lot easier. It's like a, it's like a tree. You gotta yeah. go. All, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I, I write in my notebook before I type as well. And in so far as I've gotten like twenty pages of a story written in a notebook, and then been like, I'm so bad at typing. Fuck, this is just gonna live here. <laughs> so, what are you? Are are you just interviewing me? Are you playing a game while this is going on? Oh no, I'm just interviewing. Just hanging out. Cause just, I, I don't, I don't know the, I don't know the, the. I don't know. I don't You're know things. We've done so we've done a couple of interviews, one with uh someone from the Game Workers Union about crunch and stuff. That was just a call. But then the most recent one we did was with a kid who was making an indie game called uh Kickbot. I almost said Kick Puncher, that's a community reference. Uh he was playing Kickbot 
or he was making Kickbot, and like we did an interview, and it was streamed the day the demo came out. So while I was interviewing him, and while he was being interviewed, he was watching me play the game on stream. So we've done that once. I don't That's know. Really if, cool. It was kind of dope. We had a bunch of people pop in and like, oh shit, this looks cool, and like they could listen to me ask the guy making it questions, which was really nice. Um, yeah. In a world where we can hang out together again, I would very much like to just record uh, our group playing Anthem Answer. That'd be so cool. Yeah, <laughs> I want to do it very badly. But, you know, Missouri is like 50th on the list of states distributing vaccines. So, like, mm. Mm. yeah, it's, um, <laughs> I, you know, I was starting to, I was starting to hit the wall. You know, the pandemic wall. I think people have been talking about that in the last, I think sure. it, it turns out it's like like eight or nine months of, of being in a pandemic without any sign of it ending anytime soon is where a lot of people are just like, okay, time to have a breakdown. <laughs> yeah. I, had, I had a little bit of one uh, last month. I actually stopped doing, um, I've been doing these weekly pancake art streams through Dancakes. Uh, the joy of pancakes is what they were called. And I pulled the plug on it entirely. Like I just, I mean, Ben still goes in and does one on, I think, but I just completely backed out of doing the streams because I you just hit that. You just hit that spot, that wall. Well, I hit the wall. It hit, and I've been talking a lot about it because, like, I did enjoy the streams. I enjoyed, but they, they weren't building enough to be profitable, and that's what it comes down to, sadly. Yeah. Like I have so much energy, and um, see a path if i can't see a direction forward where i'm at to where this can help me you know if it's not because sure. it, we did it it's not like we it, we bailed quick like i did those for months we did 50 episodes of joy of pancakes before i pulled the plug and um it just got to a point where you know this isn't building i can't find a way to monetize it easily and i could be spending this time and energy on things that give me more fulfillment like Anthromancer, bringing Anthromancer to market, working on all the other philosophy. I'm working on two books right now, and that's not going to, I'm burning my energy going in and mixing, you know, it's not exactly a small commitment to go in and do a stream because we got to spend like an hour prepping stuff and an hour cleaning stuff and you know, yada, yada, yada. Um, yeah. But in the last couple of weeks, I've actually been in a really good every day. And you know what really set it off? Is is fucking GameStop? <laughs> oh no! Oh man! Yep, that did some shit to me too. It's 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 so like the GameStop stock GameStonk GameStonk stock saga. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the saga, uh, like I mean, yeah, it was really interesting and exciting as it was happening. But like I kind of mentioned uh, a minute ago or so that I've been like paying a lot of attention to cryptocurrency stuff. And I've been interested in, in blockchain and bit cryptocurrency for a couple of years. Got really bad FOMO in 20 when the price went to $20,000 on Bitcoin. And I, I was like, okay, I got to figure out what the hell's going on because it makes me feel really bad that I don't know. Yeah, sure, <laughs> sure. And so I, I learned, I learned, like I became low level literate so that I could recognize certain acronyms when people were talking about them on Twitter and stuff like that. And then it kind of 
started to come back down and I uh, didn't really think about it for a while. Not, not super hard. I was always just kind of passively aware that, oh, well, Bitcoin still exists. It, it's not 20,000 anymore. Down to 3,000, right? So it's a bubble, right? So don't buy Bitcoin because it's just going to keep going down. Right. Um, yeah, right now I'm kicking myself for that. But, um, <laughs> but <clears throat> when the GameStop thing happened, I realized that like first off i took part when i heard what was going on i thought okay i'm kind of curious download one of these trading apps which old me would never have done this because the idea of of downloading and investing into stocks is just anxiety inducing to me like i i have this baseline assumption that i'm not going to be smart enough to do it or i'm going to get burned or i'm going to mess up it's going to be a waste of my money just leave it to the professionals and i think a lot of people feel that way i think we're Kind yeah, of and, and probably not without, yeah, probably not without good reason, right? Because, like, it's in the best interests of the people who have learned this system to keep as few people involved in this system as possible. Exactly. So it's, it's deliberately difficult as a, as, a means, as a means of gatekeeping. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's, 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 and, and then, you know, you, you uh, well, I guess you have these retail trading apps like Robinhood and E-Trade things um but it's still not like it's not really a common thing for people to you know i and up until up until the gamestop story i would not have been able to tell you a single one of my friends who was familiar with day trading sure. stock trading sure thing, whatever and everybody i know is now aware of it now everybody i know every immediate friend in my circle everybody saw the story watched it unfold most of them dabbled at the very least downloaded an app to look at it and that's what really set on the on the the path i'm on right now uh, because the thing is once you get over that anxiety hurdle that gatekeeping that passive get like subconscious gatekeeping that the sort of we've been taught justly to not think that this is a game for us. Once you get over that hurdle, well, the hurdle to getting into cryptocurrency is much smaller. Sure, sure. And there's apps that'll show up in the app store while you're downloading Robinhood that are designed for the trading of cryptocurrencies. Now, I already had some literacy in this space, so it, my brain just sort of did its thing and it was like oh shit i see the pattern i see things happening this what i think is about to happen and it's already kind of happening is we're this year going to see a much 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 wider adoption of cryptocurrencies for reasons one the gamestop stock saga was a catalyst that helps people overcome their anxieties about playing the game sure it's actually three three things here uh two this a part of the saga is that these companies like Robinhood and E-Trade, like through their their blatant manipulation of the market in everybody's face, like straight to their fucking phones, a little <laughs> thing that said, no, you can't buy this because we don't want you to because it's our game and you're breaking. Yeah. So that and so that tells everybody that it's a bullshit game. That these people have rigged against us, and it's oh, sort and of then a, it's and then it's easy to break if you just like decide fuck it. <laughs> like, yeah, <laughs> we have these networks, these communities now that can manipulate stock prices if they want to. Like, 
so and then and then the third thing the third thing is that at the same time as this is happening there entirely new class of assets called cryptocurrencies whose value proposition complete subversion of the existing monetary system that we've had for thousands of years yeah it it is it is something that can't be issued by can't be banks and rewards early adopters whether you're extremely wealthy or just some schmuck and so all these things happening at the same time my brain lit up like a christmas tree and i thought okay time for me to take this more seriously i guess that's where I'm at now. When when uh, when you reached out to me earlier, I was actually ten thousand words into a script for a video essay I'm making to help my friends understand what's happening um, on a philosophical level. Sure. I think there's plenty of people out there that are doing Bitcoin education, or there's plenty of resources to teach yourself the technical stuff if you want to learn it. Um, but I don't see as many people that are like. Talking about like the metaphysical implications of what's about to happen. <laughs> sure. Yeah, it's interesting because I remember when there was a there was a moment in August <clears throat> of last year. No, fuck. Wait. Yes. <laughs> Whatever. Time. It's a blur right now. Every day's blur's day. Uh, Thursday of last year. Um, where did I just say Thursday of last year? Blur's day of last year. Blur. There it is. Anyway, uh, I remember seeing GameStop stock at $4 in August. Mm-hmm. And having worked there and then quit working there in a fiery ball of anger. Um, imagine, imagine that. And then writing about it. And then that getting published. It was great. I had to publish under a pseudonym, but it's fine. Um, and then... <laughs> I won't tell anyone. It's fine. Uh, there's like 10 people that listen to this podcast. If GameStop's one of them, fuck you. that's how i feel about that no but uh the idea of being like man gamestop stocks four dollars and like my my analytical brain was like okay so like next gen systems are coming out next are coming out soon because it was august they're coming out in november so the stock's gonna go up because of that for sure no doubt also there's rumors that like somebody's interested in partnering with them and Microsoft closed all their store, their retail stores, save like 10 in like June. And I was like, it would be perfect if it was them because they have the money. So I like went to my wife and was like, let me take a loan out for a grand and buy 250 shares of GameStop stock at the very least in a month. It'll be worth a little more. We'll just get our money back. Um, but like literally, and I shit you not, we just got distracted and that conversation never continued. And then in October, November, a couple months later, GameStop and Microsoft announced a partnership and I was like, oh fuck. And stock went up to like $10 already. There's your money back plus a double because it was at $4. Uh And then, uh and then I, in, you know, a couple weeks ago, I did the math. And if I had put in a grand in August. And then withdrawn at the beginning of February during this craze when it was like between three fifty and four fifty for like two days. The four twenty dot sixty nine. The payout would have been fucking bananas. Yeah. And for like two or three days, I wasn't sad. Like I wasn't depressed, oh. but like I couldn't escape the thought. So it caused a not insignificant level of like 
stress and anxiety, which then led to like a not insignificant level of, I can't do anything because I just keep wishing I could figure out time travel real quick. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I was so Uh, furious because like I saw it was at 250 and I was like, damn. Damn. And then like a week later it was 350 and I was like, oh my God, what did I do? Yeah, what, what have I, I done? done? <laughs> what what have I, I done? <laughs> I was so disappointed like, in myself. But at the end of the day, you did you made a profit, right? I mean I would have, but I didn't buy any stock. Uh, oh, I thought you said oh, okay, okay. So you didn't I, I was under the impression that you were saying that you you sold it when it was at 10, but no, you didn't buy any. No, I didn't buy any because we just forgot to finish that conversation. You you fucking fool. <laughs> you know. <laughs> like GameStop stock was $4. And I, I I, told myself and my friends, like, we should do this. God, and four months so... later, that would have turned into a 450% investment. Or 4,000% so... investment? It was insane. Yeah, yeah. It would have been something insane like that. It's, it's just so funny, right? Like, it's so... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, you laugh because you can't help but... Do we, that. We were just talking about how, like, GameStop is a dying business. They haven't updated their practices. They don't know how to deal with the fact that everybody can download shit straight to their consoles, and like, they can down, they can, they can order consoles from Amazon and shit. Like, <laughs> it's, it's, it's absurd. It's just so absurd. I, th- I mean, I feel like that's a part of what makes it so such a powerful moment. How funny it is. Yeah. Yeah. If it wasn't as funny. It wouldn't have become a meme. And if it didn't become a meme, it wouldn't have done what it did. Right. And people wouldn't have had this whole learning opportunity for how flimsy and irrelevant the billions of dollars that these Wall Street traders are constantly throwing around instead of helping the poor. And also how fucking fragile some of these, excuse me, how fragile some of these hedge fund managers are emotionally. Because watching people cry over GameStop stock. It's got to be one of the funniest things I've experienced in my life. Watching as a seven or eight figure bank account cry on TV because they lost some money. (laughs) It's more than that, though, right? Like, they're not just crying on TV because they lost money. They're crying on TV because they lost money to people poorer than them who weren't playing the game by the rules that they set up for themselves. Right. They they broke the rules. So they're just like, this isn't how you do it. It's like when you try to play, you know, a fighting game with a kid who doesn't know how to play a fighting game, who mashes buttons and beats you. That's a that's a that's a quantum leap more disappointing than playing yeah. against somebody who's very skilled and beats you because they're very practiced. Like getting yeah. your ass kicked by a button masher is what happened to hedge fund managers and watching them cry yeah. about it was cathartic as fuck. Right. Well, because because those hedge fund managers are, they themselves are a lot like that kid in a lot of ways, certainly emotionally, right? Like they are, they, it's, it, this is what happens when you create a, an economic system that incentivizes the Joffreys of the world to become the most <laughs> powerful people. <laughs> yeah, you get a exactly. Bunch of kids who, if they could kill you for it, they do it in a heartbeat. Yeah. They'd be like, hey, um, this whole group of people, just like, can we, just dead. They'd be yeah, fine. They wouldn't doing. care. That's what they're doing with, with, the, that's what they're doing with Medicare for all. <laughs> like, why wouldn't they do it with Wall Street? Yeah, it's absurd. It's absurd. But, you know, yeah. you know, there's, uh, 
like you said, the the winds have changed. There's an eastern wind, right? Euros is blowing. So something's coming, and it's going to mean that the playing field, if not level, I don't imagine. I don't delude myself into thinking it'll be level anytime soon. But at the very least, like this January, Disrupt- February disruptive movement or moment even is enough to poke a hole in the side of the swimming pool. And once that happens, that hole just gets bigger and bigger. <laughs> Well, and, and so much of these systems are driven by nothing tangible. They're driven by mimetics in a lot of ways, um, right? Like like the way we think of these things ultimately manifests in the way we're all conducting our behavior and allowing things to go on. And so when you have moments like the GameStop thing that become weeks-long national news, international news, and everybody's looking at it at the same time, that means everybody is learning this information. Not every, I mean, everybody's mind is going to process it a little bit different based on their context, based on their experiences. But everybody is getting the same messages distributed, and it's influencing the way they look at the world and see the world, right? Your experiences, when you read a news story about some crazy thing that happened, it changes the way it, – it changes the ideas you're open to. It changes your your appraisal of what the problems really are. And it changes as a result, it's going to change the creative solutions that the people who are driven to create solutions think up. Yeah. And that is the snowball effect that I think is it's what's it's what's going on right now. Um, I feel I feel very much like I know a large part of this has to do with the way that I have curated my Twitter feed, certain topics, certain ideas that I follow. I end up getting bombarded with a lot of information about various cryptocurrencies and various things in the news. But you can look at the markets. It's it's not just the GameStop thing anymore, right? Because um, Elon Musk, for instance, who I have a bit of a love hate relationship <laughs> with, I'll be the first to admit. I, I think uh, I think I used to think he was really cool, and then I learned a little bit about class consciousness, and now I do my best to see him with clear eyes. But he was the C- He's the CEO of Tesla, and Tesla has been like infamously. Um, it up until I, I think it might still be historically like one of the most shorted stocks in the world. And the short selling is the whole thing that the GameStop thing was about, like the idea of hedge fund managers betting against the success of a company. And I've already looked into this, like back when I was still trying to be the weird nerd that defended Elon Musk from criticism. Um, I... <laughs> You, you find out that like the people with all the money and power, like the, uh, which a lot of them are hedge fund managers and people investing in hedge funds and that sort of stuff, they also happen to have other kinds of power. They, that money allows them to purchase media apparatus. It lets them project ideas and stories that they think are favorable. And that's a big part of what they do with these short sellings is they, they short a stock to gamble on the idea that it's going to do poorly, and then they sabotage the company that that owns the stock, that that uh, the company the stock is in, so that they can you know make that that short selling. And so what's been happening with Tesla, and I mean I think I think there are a lot of valid criticisms, uh, but I also think that a lot of the criticism against the company Tesla and even especially the the personage of Elon Musk. Like there is a lot of that that is actively intended by people who will make money if their stock goes down. It's billionaires fighting with each other. And one of the ways that they try to, to, to win that fight is to disparage the character of the CEO of this company that is doing. um, Yeah. It's proxy wars all 
all waged through image, um, right. which is the why social media is like the dangerous thing that it is to many people, right? Is that like... Yeah, it's really easy to get a rumor out there or to get people to be uncritical about what they're consuming about somebody. And, and, and you're sort of incentivized to um, reduce human beings to the simplest and most cartoonish caricature of them so that you can get more likes and shares for dunking on them. Right. And uh, I mean, that just is what it is. Like, I don't really actually care that much. The only reason I'm mentioning all this is because I think it's funny as hell that the short sellers took part in this against Tesla. And then Musk, using his influence, was able to like pour gasoline on the GameStop thing and help destroy a couple of Melvin Capital's worth by saying game stonks one time on his Twitter feed. Yeah. Yeah. Like. That shit's funny as hell. What I what where was I fucking going? Why did I bring up Elon Musk in the first place? Why does anybody bring up Elon Musk in the first place? <laughs> just gigantic white man. Yeah, he's he's Ultron with skin on. <laughs> he's trying to get those little relics so he can get everybody get everybody on the same page. Yeah. <laughs> um, but so, okay, so. I guess where where I've kind of gone since, okay, I, I think what I was trying to get at was that um, Musk has been in the news a lot after the game, like the GameStop thing that happened, but then he started tweeting about Dogecoin, which is the joke cryptocurrency, and brought the value of that up just out of the fucking, like, made a couple millionaires overnight from doing that. Yep. And then Tesla recently invested $1.5 billion into Bitcoin, and that's a big deal because that's one of the biggest and most visible institutions, capitalist institution, so, you know, that has an influence in a capitalist economy, basically taking a gigantic gamble and saying, we trust Bitcoin enough to spend $1.5 billion on it. Trust is where the value of the thing comes from. So that signal other firms, like the, the value of Bitcoin immediately spiked because it's there's like a, a cash grab, like, oh, they, they trust it. Well, everybody starts buying it. The supply goes down, goes up, the price increases. What I think is happening right now is a feedback loop, right? Because the it is part of the nature that there's sort of this MLM vibe that a lot of cryptocurrencies give off. Yeah. Multi-level marketing, like the sooner you get in, the more you get. And it is, to an extent, it is that. Um, it definitely has that vibe it does reward the earliest movers. The nature of the cryptocurrency is such that like, if you were one of the first people to mine Bitcoin, you would have been getting like they, the, the network awarded 50 Bitcoins every 10 minutes when it was first created. That's $2.5 million now. It wasn't that then, but if you were stacking that many Bitcoin, like uh, the guy, the, the mythological creator of Bitcoin, Satoshi Nakamoto is rumored to have uh, over a million Bitcoin. And if the coin continues to increase in value, he's basically going, or they, they are basically going to end up being the most well being on the planet without ever having to have exploited the value of someone else's labor. Right. That shit's crazy to me. Um, yeah, sure. It's a, uh, it's, it changes the way that money fundamentally has worked for like the existence of money. <laughs> And, and, and that's also why I mentioned the multi-level marketing thing, because it is similar in the sense that early adopters get more reward, but it's not like you have to do anything. 
besides being an early adopter. A multi-level marketing scheme is exploiting the labor of the people that come after you. They have to work harder than you in order to in order to get anything, I guess. And it's it's sort of like it's an incentive structure, but you don't have to like like if I if I start investing in Bitcoin now, I don't have to sell Tupperware out my ass to my neighbors and stuff to to just do that. You know, like yes, I, I missed out on the early the early rush, but fundamentally the value is created by the people coming in early and creating the network that supports all this stuff. And um so now you're gonna have all these giant companies that are realizing, okay, Tesla spent 1.5 billion on Bitcoin. That means they have 1.5 billion dollars of Bitcoin. Immediately it went up to 1.8 billion dollars worth because of the way that the asset goes up in value as more people get into it. In order to match how many they bought, the next company is going to have to buy $2 billion worth. And the next company is going to have to buy $5 billion worth. Sure. And they're going to be getting the same amount the company does. And so I think what's happening is I think a lot of big companies like, and there's whispers, there's whispers of companies like Apple rumored to buy $5 billion worth of Bitcoin at some point in the next few. Um, they might have, um, you know, this stuff is really, it's, it's cryptographically secure. So it's not necessary when somebody does it but the price is going to go up and it's going to drive more people into it it's going to drive more people to be willing to accept it in exchange for goods and services it's going to drive more people to explore the other possibilities in this space and there's going to be a lot of regular schmucks like me and you who are going to be like oh maybe i should put a little bit of money in this and maybe i should learn about how this technology works so that i'm not left behind and um you ever heard of nfts well i'm on i'm i'm oh boy my brain just shut down i'm familiar with the term i'm unfamiliar with what non-fungible tokens yes i have heard this talked about but illumin illu what am i trying to say tell me (laughs) (laughs) jesus okay okay this is okay so just just to be clear I have been just exploding with passion about this. I, I sort of feel like I've found what I've been supposed to be doing this whole time. This this cryptocurrency space um, is it perfectly interfaces with the particular brand of ADD that I have, and seems to be rewarding me by giving me all these awesome po- opportunities to share what I know with people. So yeah, like, yeah, if I get too much, you let me know. If you have any questions, <laughs> fine. You- Feel free to ask. You're uh, fine. Go for it. I get self-conscious about it because I, I know I get like, oh, such a good dude. Um, but. It's just called passion, my friend. Yeah. I was, I'm overwhelmed with it sometimes. So it's okay. <laughs> NFTs. Yeah, it's non-fungible. A non-fungible yeah. And this this actually ties into the pancake art thing. It's, this is a, it's tying all the things I do together, which is probably part of the reason I'm so crazy about it. NFTs are non-fungible tokens. Fungible is a finance word. I learned this just a couple of days ago. It means easily exchanged with something similar. Um, it's sort of like if, if you have a dollar bill and I have a dollar bill, we can sure. swap those dollar bills and it's kind of like nothing happened. It doesn't sure. really matter. They're fungible. They, they are the same value no matter what. A non-fungible asset would be something like a house, right? That You can invest in a house, but it's not easy to trade that house with another house, even if they're the same monetary value, that house is going to have different problems. It's going to have a different floor plan. It's going to have a different history. Sure. Uh, and also, you can't really move them around, so it's kind of impossible to trade them like that anyway. 
um, paintings, and this is a little bit more relevant to what NFTs are, paintings are also non-fungible because a painting, even if you have a painting that is appraised at the same value, it is fundamentally a different item. Yeah. And especially with something like art, where uh, emotions tie into what the value is, it's, you know, it's, it's not the same painting. It's not the same artist, not expressing the same. It's a different thing. It's not fungible. Sure. That makes sense. So I can't trade a painting for a painting because this painting is different than that painting. It's not right. the same. Yes. So non-fungible tokens are a new kind of digital asset that is built on a lot of the same ideas that Bitcoin is built on. It uses a distributed ledger to track ownership of things. Um, for folks that just as a quick recap, like the, the Bitcoin network, it creates this, this ledger called a blockchain that all you really need to know to get the gist is that it you don't it makes it so you don't have to trust a bank or a state or another institution to verify that I have this many Bitcoin and you have this many Bitcoin and I'm gonna move this because this ledger is put on every machine on the network simultaneously. And they use this really advanced cryptography to secure it and prevent hacking. But the gist of it is that it is a, a technological innovation that makes it possible to have a single ledger everybody agrees on without having to trust another entity with power to enforce it. We can all agree that everybody that has Bitcoin has X Bitcoin because we can all see the same ledger and right. we don't have to offset a police force to go and beat somebody up or or to violate it because the technology itself prevents that it, we can trust and the fact that it's you know the blockchain the bitcoin network exists 12 years later is evidence of the fact that the technology works right the thing is when bitcoin was produced when it was created initially it was created as open source meaning that anybody that wants to look at how it works and maybe change it and make their own version of it can and so this is why we have so many cryptocurrencies now which, you know, it's not just Bitcoin. It's There's Ethereum, there's um, Dash, Monero, Dogecoin. There's all these different cryptocurrencies that are based on the same technology of Bitcoin because the technology was published open source for anybody to do. Thank God. The guy, Satoshi Nakamoto, what a, what, a, what a killer dude. Like, that was amazing. Changed the world forever. So the NFTs are based on the Ethereum blockchain, or at least the first implementations I've seen. Tech, I mean, it's open source, you know, you can do this on anything, but basically what Ethereum is trying to do that is different from Bitcoin. Bitcoin tracks the movement and creation of Bitcoin. That's the, that's the whole point of it. But you can do other stuff with this ledger technology. And that's what a lot of other people are trying to explore right now. What Ethereum has tried to create is a network anybody can use to set up and execute what are called smart contracts. And a smart contract is basically just a line of code that determines basically automating a contract. So you don't need a state government or lawyer to enforce it. You enforce it with code. Um, like if I have a royalty agreement, like, and, and here's, okay, here's where NFTs really come in. Um, I can make a digital painting and turn it into a non-fungible token. When I do that, it's called minting. 
I can say, I only want there to be one copy of this in existence. I can change, I can say 10, 15, whatever. I want there to be a number of copies in existence, but I'll say I want one NFT of this painting to exist. And then I can list it on an exchange, uh, a service that is designed to, you know, host these NFT smart contract things. And then somebody can buy that from me. When they buy that from me, it is going to, this, this NFT is going to track that I made it, that I was the first owner, that this was the second owner, and it tracks how much they paid. If they go on to sell this NFT to somebody else, the smart contract kicks in, and I'm guaranteed a 10% royalty of every time this gets sold. Now, I think I'm probably not explaining this in the right order, but if you're like me at this point, you're probably like, what the hell's the point? Um, because we're talking about like a PNG file, right? Like you could literally sure. look at an NFT, right click, say, save as, put it on your computer, duplicate it a million, put it on a t-shirt, sell the t-shirt. And like, I'd just be sitting there like, oh, it's my NFT. What are you doing? Like, how does, what, what does it matter? Right. Right. And I, I have been, I really, the main reason I ended up getting curious about this is because my buddy Corey uh, who's I've known for a while, he's involved in the cryptocurrency space and he knows that I'm interested in this stuff. When he started hearing about these NFTs, he reached out and said, hey man, check, told me to look into it. And um, I have learned at this point, just, just like what you were saying about, about your, your, that weird, awful feeling that you get watching the opportunity slip away because you didn't act fast enough or something in the GameStop situation. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. This space, cryptocurrency in particular, is it, the technology is designed to make it so that the sooner you works and the sooner you get involved in whatever new community is going to pop off, the more you will profit for having done so. The more lucrative or wealthy or powerful you'll become. And so, I've missed enough boats to think, okay. I'm gonna try, I'm gonna I'm gonna sit here and I'm gonna teach myself how this shit works and why it works if it kills me, right? Right. So what I figured out, it doesn't really. I think that there's a and there's a lot of people in the space who are buying and trading NFTs who I don't think really understand it either, and, and it's unsatisfying to hear their explanations for why this is interesting, why it's valuable. They'll they'll be like, oh, um, it's valuable because you can. Uh, ensure that people, you know, people don't pirate it. And it's like, well, you can't, you can't ensure people won't pirate it. That's just wrong. So that can't be where the value comes from. And there's people that'll say, well, oh, ownership of the item proves that it's a legitimate item and you own it. And, you know, rich people love that. They can flex, you know, like this is a real Rolex, but it's also like the NFTs aren't connected to anything in the real world, really. Right. Like, it's not like it's, I mean, I think you could probably, do that you could probably set something up be a company that says when you buy you know a painting from us we will also send you the nft that proves you own it but then like what's going to stop that person from selling the painting and not the nft right like they're not connected so like it's not really getting its value from proving that you own a physical object it's just a so i'm sitting here and i'm trying to figure out what the hell this means Cause that's like, it's like, it's that sense that like, there's a carrot being dangled in front of you, but it's like a ghost carrot or something. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, sure. Sure. Like, what the hell is happening? So I, I, I went through the effort of going through the process of actually making one. 
um, and I took the Joker pancake that I made about, I don't know, like a year ago, whenever the movie came out. It's the Joaquin Phoenix Joker is one of my better pancakes. Um, I happened to have the file sitting on my laptop, and it was already trimmed out like a transparent PNG, so the pancake was the only thing. You know, it was just suspended. And, um, and I went to this website called Rarible, R-A-R-I-B-L-E which is designed to facilitate the creation of NFTs. It, 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 it automates the process of generating a smart contract that the Ethereum blockchain will execute on with this digital token thing. And I went through the process and I'll tell you, it was not super intuitive. It was very, it was scary actually. Um, and that's, that's sort of the thing about cryptocurrency is that there are certain trade-offs with the security like, I basically, I vaporized $25 worth of Ethereum tokens because you have to pay, right? You have to pay a certain amount of money to get the network to execute the contract and encode it into this distributed ledger. It's not free, right? It's not like sure, going to DeviantArt right. and I hop on there and a deviation or, you know, or go on Facebook and post a picture. Those are, it's free to do that because those companies are making money off of advertising, but there's no company here. There's no... There's no centralized organization. There are tools that organizations will create, but the very nature of blockchain makes it all decentralized. And so what you have to do is you have to incentivize the network to work for you by paying the miners, the people that are securing these ledgers. Um, so my first attempt at making an NFT didn't work. I lost $25 worth of Ethereum, which in five years time, maybe that'll be $50,000. Who knows? No. <laughs> right. But the thing, that's the thing about cryptocurrency is that if you send currency to an address that doesn't work or doesn't exist or there's a flaw or something, there's no institution I can appeal to. I can't say, the, say to the bank, hey, could you reverse that? Because nobody has that power. And that's what makes it so cool. But you got to, you know, like, is what it is. Like, you got to learn that. Basically, I, I'm glad that it was only 25 bucks and not like, oh, I'm going to send $2,500 of something. Like, you know what I mean? Sure. Like, yeah. It was a I, much yeah, lower. Yeah. 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 Um, but I was really proud of myself because an older version of me losing that $25, I would have been like, this is a fucking scam. I'm wasting my time and energy. This is a dumb game for rich people. It's a fad. It's going to fade out. And I kind of stopped myself and I was like, okay, hold on. Let me just do a little bit more Googling and see if I can figure this out. And I did. It turns out that it was a glitch with the wallet that they suggested I use. They suggested I use a specific cryptocurrency wallet called Fortmatic. And it turns out other people have had this a similar glitch. Um, and the people in the thread I looked at suggested using this different wallet called MetaMask. And I went and I got a MetaMask wallet and um, put my Ethereum in the MetaMask wallet and then tried to do it again. And it went through. Nice. And I refreshed the page and I looked at it and I saw, oh, there's my Joker pancake as a non-fungible token. It non-fungible token. And I set the price. The price I set was one Ethereum, which is currently trading at about $1,800. So like I wasn't really – I don't really care if somebody buys it. But it was after I did it, after I went through that whole process and realized like – I guess, you know, like a lot of times learning things, even like learning a language, you can't just learn it on a book. You can't just read about it. You, you're not really going to start to think about the implications and think about how it all connects until you try to participate. Right. 
Right. And then things start to sort of work on their own in the background of your brain. And yeah, after it's the hands-on learning instead of like book learning. You got to actually right. kind of get involved before your brain starts to go, oh, this information goes here and this information and, goes here. And sometimes you'll get burned doing that, right? Like, sure, like sure. is what it is. That's, that's, that is literally the most valuable shit that can happen because that's what the lessons are. You learn that and then you know how to, you know, to use that, that wallet, you know, it's possible to lose that money. And then, um, so I was sitting there and I was just kind of thinking about this NFT that it, it exists, right? It exists. And the nature of chain is such that it will always exist. So long as the Ethereum blockchain continues to function. And because these are decentralized networks, the what would have to happen for the Ethereum network to stop functioning would be a global, like a cataclysm, right? Like a physical, uh, a gigantic EMP, something that would destabilize all of society as we know it, or an explosion. And even then, you could nuke North America, the entirety of North America, and the Ethereum blockchain would still exist in the nodes that were left over. Yeah, so sure. like. As long as we, if, if the Ethereum blockchain continues to exist, then this token I, I made will also continue to exist. I mean, this shit could, this shit could be a 10,000 year old. Discord booting me out on all devices definitely made me feel uncomfortable. <laughs> Sitting here talking about cryptocurrency, I'm like... So the banks. <laughs> Do I have a speaker input? I could probably go. You mean like go get my headphones? Beep boop boop beep beep boop 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 boop. There we go. Okay, yeah, it was on my end. You got me. All right. Well, I had levels on my side, so I was like, "There's something going wrong." I don't know what it is though, but you can hear me now and see me. Yeah. Yeah. Discord. Discord is backed by the big banks, and so if you talk about um non-centralized coin long enough they will <laughs> blacklist your account apparently <laughs> yeah apparently they booted me it's, it's just sort of like it i pulled up the discord on my phone and it was like log in and i was like excuse me <laughs> yeah that's weird i'll figure this out later yeah i'm not gonna do it now because it's gonna if it asks for your like information run away run yeah, away i want my password can you give us like, your social real quick just we want to verify who you are so we know where to find you just, just uh in case. just in case yeah no you were saying though that uh you were saying something that i was like about to comment on and then you got dumped and that it was that like this for what it's worth now this like network based non-centralized decentralized uh currency could be a thing 10,000 years from now. And like, that's one of those things where it's like, technology is kind of where we are. And like, I don't see that going anywhere, right? Store like mm -hmm. file storage and file size shape format is gonna change inevitably, it always does. And we'll continue working on these different things as we continue to learn compression to the point where mm -hmm. we can make something that's a terabyte now smaller. But um, I, <laughs> I started buying all my games digitally which is something mm -hmm. that a lot of people think, okay, I worked at GameStop. We've talked about this, but like a lot of people, when you hear just buy it digitally, they're like, well, what if Microsoft takes it away? That's a probably valid. That's a valid argument. I hear yeah. that. That makes sense. That happened to Scott Pilgrim. Yeah. Yeah. And now it's back and everyone's like, fuck yeah. And Ubisoft got to make money off of it twice. So 
Yeah. Who's the I, sucker in honestly, that situation? <laughs> honestly, I played it, and it didn't age as well as I thought it would. Sure, and of course, of course. You're like, hey, fuck yeah, I got it. And then you play it, and you go, oh, yeah. Games have okay. cut, like, ha- games have cut, like, the game feel of Hades destroys Scott Oh, Hawk. yeah, dude. Everything Melee is ruined for me because Forever. of Hades. Because Hades was like, this is how you do it good. And I was like, fuck. Yeah. And you did it without crunching your employees? Fuck. Um, yeah. <laughs> but the, the other questions or the other, like, statements you'd get from people... We're like, well, what if, what if the internet goes out? And I was like, you mean temporarily? Because then, like, read a fucking book. <laughs> You're an adult. But if you mean permanently, that's a far more serious problem than I can't play Call of Duty. I probably won't care. <laughs> yeah. No, uh, my Xbox is going to stay home when I travel to the mountains to hide. Um, <laughs> hide with the rising water. Exactly. Like, no, I'm not worried about that. So... One of my favorite things about science fiction is that it's been prophetic for probably since its since its foundation, and there are very few futures that are seen where we don't. I mean, yes, there are far futures where we're back in the Stone Age because we've nuked ourselves to death and we have to start over. But far and above the the, the sci-fi future you see in all of these works of fiction are one of like the connectivity we have now. To the nth degree. The surveillance that we have now to the nth degree. That's why cyberpunk is my absolute jam as a genre. Because it feels like the most logical progression of this just like hyper-capitalist wasteland we're building. Turning Mm -hmm. into an actual hyper-capitalist wasteland. Um, So yeah, all of these things, all of these digital coin offerings uh, have been interesting to me. Because like, of course that makes sense. Of course it makes sense that eventually, like, fuck it, you're not going to go to the bank. It's all going to be tied to a chip that's in your hand. And you're going to be able to, like, manipulate what different kinds of currency you have. And certain places are going to take certain kinds of currency. They're going to deal in certain kinds of currency and all those different um, all those different formats. Yeah, it's, just, it's they're, they're sort of like human energy signatures at that point. Yeah, exactly, yeah. It's, Frequencies. We... It's interesting and bizarre and also amazing. Um you before we got before we started talking about this though, you mentioned doing um, the videos. So we talked about this when we were hanging out at the park a couple. Was that a couple months ago? Or was that like fucking six months ago? Who knows? Something like that. Uh, it was time in the past. But we you talked about like we, a lot of this conversation has been kind of about how this last year. Well, indirectly, uh, but it has been about how this last year of like just the world having to do things differently is causing us to go, oh, we can do things differently. And I know mm-hmm. that a part of our conversation then was a kind of focused on this, like what the pandemic sucks, mm-hmm. but I'm I'm in <laughs> I'm encouraged to see what this pandemic is going to show us is. Uh, what systems it's going to show us are broken and what opportunities it's going to show us we can improve in. Mm -hmm. And one of those things was the kind of content you were building for uh, Dan Cakes and like that whole enterprise. And then also that, how that bled into dedicating time to Anthromancer and the, the myriad multimedia facets that Anthromancer has. And earlier in this conversation, you talked about doing weekly videos and cutting them out and for a second, I thought you were talking about doing that because of, like, just growth for Dan Cakes not being apparent. But it also, you also qualified it as, like, I could be doing something that was more fulfilling 
And the thing that was more fulfilling for you was not creating a different kind of content specifically for Dan Cakes to get more growth. It was giving your mind a little bit of release and like focusing on creating more for this creative endeavor that you're doing. So Mm -hmm. (laughs) to get to the final point of this very wraparound question, how do you find yourself balancing building for audience as opposed to building for yourself? I got there eventually. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, that's a, that's a really good question. Um, uh, whew, how do I balance between building for audience versus building for myself? Well, I guess I have been, this is a great question. I've been in conflict with myself and especially with the other Dan Cakes team members, the other artists and, and co-owners with me for a long time about the, like one of the, so, okay. I, I, I still have points about the NFT thing. Um, sure. but one of the things that just came to mind is that I set the price at, at $1,800 in Ethereum, right? Right, one Ethereum, yeah. Which is $1,800. It's a huge price. But, like, running Dan Cakes with everybody on a salary, we've had this, in, this the incentive the incentive structure of our business has been that we need to make a certain amount of money, and we're not sure if we can. Right. So... We need to do certain things to ensure, because we don't feel secure, we need to make X amount of content. We need to get X amount of engagement on our posts. We need to sell our art at a low enough price that people will buy it. But at a high enough price that it's not wasting your time. Right? (laughs) Sure. My impulse for a very long time has been, we're, we're talking about art, right? And, and I would say for a very long time, I think that to, to build the events company that we built, Hank's intuition was probably right that it makes sense to make lots of small content. But for the entire time we've done Dan Cakes, my artist brain has always been hooked on this idea that like, dude, you don't have to make lots of content. You can make one piece of content in your entire life and be set. Yeah. If it's quality if enough, it's good. if it or if it if hits at the right moment, even sometimes, or if it serves people really, yeah, right. I think sure. that's a big thing. If it serves people, if people get something out of it, then what they're going to end up doing is spreading the gospel for you. And it's it comes back to it's the I Ching thing, right? Like they, they're yeah. they're always talking about how like the superior man has patience, but also understands that like life is effortless, and if you're putting a lot of effort into something. You're it's not quite really there good. yet. Yeah, sure, sure. We uh, there's so, a go. Go ahead. Go ahead. So, so your question was was how do I balance between creating for an audience and how do I current balance for creating for myself? The older I get, the more I'm like, fuck the audience. I don't give a shit what the audience what what they want. I do not care because what I'm making is going to the, the if I'm making something that is authentic and well executed if i am able to communicate clearly what i am trying to communicate not everybody's gonna like it and if i try to file down (laughs) and that's okay (laughs) right exactly that's okay um it it is in a lot of cases switching from the uh, the scarcity mindset to the abundance mindset going from there's not enough and I need some, and in order to get some, I have to make sure that I look at what I look outwards and look at the world outside of me for what I should be. Right. 
and then try to contort what's inside of me into that. Whereas, you know, the sort of Taoist wisdom would be that, well, whatever you are inside of you is trying to grow out and is trying to come out. And when it does, if you, if, if you do it poorly, then you'll learn from trying it. Right. If you do it well, it's going to be way more fulfilling, way more effortless to succeed doing that because it's because it's way more appealing. It's people I've always I've I've you've we've both said it, but it's one of my least favorite words of all time. Win referring to what people create because it's the word content. I just (laughs) every time I hear it. I fucking cringe. I've gotten into arguments about it. It's just like a spiritual slop. Yeah. It's just like, here's this bowl of many ingredients. And the more things you add into it, the less good it tastes. Just without, that doesn't, you can't change that. And so like, when you say that what a YouTuber creates is content, and then you qualify the, the, the creations of an artist as content, you're putting those two things together and it mm-hmm. sucks, and it's dumb, it's, and it's, it's a natural. It's a natural result of capitalism. Yeah, it's Every it's a marketing term. Top. It's a marketing term that left the marketing room and entered into the like business, not even business space, the like personal space. And people were like, "Oh, if I got to make content, if they're making content, I have to make content." And then that turns into that... like content and branding. And I hate. Yeah. I hate branding too, because like. That comes from putting a mark on cattle that you own them. <laughs> like, fuck. Uh-huh. No, I don't want that. I don't want to have a brand. I don't want people to walk around with things that have my brand on them. That feels gross. I want people to like my art. And because they like my art, want to wear my art if I decide to make something that's wearable, right? Or or, or if I, the, the thing you said a moment ago of like, you could create one thing. Like, I, the first thing I thought of, and it's weird, my brain does this uh, and makes weird connections, but, like, if you watch modern-day action movies, right, each action scene is, like, this cacophony. Sometimes it's a symphony. John Wick gets it right. Most of the time it's a cacophony of movements and noises and discoloration and light. You're just like, oh, there's a bunch of shit happening. But if you go back to, like, Akira Kurosawa... His action scenes had as much impact, if not more, and they're simple. And there's one or two or three movements, and the camera sits still, and there's not a lot of changing light or sound or noise or vibration. It's just he tells he tells you he tells you the whole point in a few moves, as opposed to spending hours and thousands of cuts to do the same fucking thing. It's that the the most the most like cherished thing is rarely the most complex. It's ne- it's more naturally the thing that was the most natural. It's 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 the minimal. It's minimalism. Yeah. Like it's literally the thing that makes you feel the best. The art, the media, whatever it is that you're experiencing makes you feel the best is the thing that it it cuts to the heart of it. Yeah. It just like it's trying to say something and it says exactly what it means and nothing else. Yeah. It doesn't waste your time sure. with flashy shit. It doesn't bother you. Because, I mean, I guess the thing is, is I think it actually all comes down to, like, you know, physics and thermodynamics and, and, and like, the, the laws right. of, the, of, of entropy. Like, you as a human animal, as a human animal, you are constantly 
constantly dying. <laughs> and every single iota of energy that somebody makes you use that they didn't have to make you use, <laughs> on some level, subtle as it may be, is an infringement yeah, on your taking ability away. to enjoy your life. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's taking away something I can't get back. Yeah. It's gone. Yeah. There's a there's I mean, a quote, and, and I don't remember who said it, but it's that basically that like the more complex a solution, the more prone it is to failure. So therefore, the most logical conclusion is that systems that work with the fewest possible steps are the more perfect. It sounds like Occam's Razor. It sounds like a different version. It of may Occam's be. Version. It may be Occam's. I may have just made Occam's Razor a paragraph instead well, of a sentence. I, I've never heard Occam's Razor applied to systems, but I guess it's 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 tied to like explanations, right? Like the simplest explanation is the most most likely, unless you can prove otherwise. Right. So it's not you were saying isn't necessarily exactly Occam's Razor, but it's very similar in what it's trying to say. That like, if you don't. If you don't have to, if you don't have to say that it was space lizards, <laughs> fucking don't. A better explanation. <laughs> yeah. it probably sure. wasn't space lizards. Yeah, sure. Yeah, and if you and if you can tell a story or create a thing, and do it with maybe not less effort for you. That's the other thing. Like you may make one thing, but it may take all of your being for whatever period of time it takes to make it. But like, if, on how you define effort? I think sure. And there's that's probably subjective to literally everybody that wants to define uh, effort, right? But like, if you create a thing, and like, I think the way that most things for me work, it's when an artist goes, "This is what I've made," and you're gonna want more or less or just a different side of it, but you don't get that because I made it. So shut up. Like, there are movies or pieces of art or. Just all sorts of different things I'll encounter and be like, but I want to know. Which is why I love when, like, directors or writers, when asked about, like, well, what did this mean? They go, I don't know. What did it mean? I'm like, fuck. There's that, that David Lynch meme. <laughs> yeah. like, oh, you know, Eraserhead's my most spiritual work. Elaborate on that. No. <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah, it's perfect. I love it. Because it's it's the, you've created a thing that was for you. To, because you wanted to make it and now other people are viewing it and when they want you to add something to it you're just like nope what i gave you is what i wanted to give you that is it so do you answer so do you yeah anthem answer exactly i was gonna say do you find yourself doing that with anthem answer creating that thing that is what you want knowing that people will grab more from it than you maybe put there well, there's definitely, so the development of Anthromancer has been very, sometimes it feels arduous because it's taken so long. It feels arduous sure. because I want it to be done. I want it to be out there. I want to feel what it's like to have this thing exist. But it's also been really luxurious, if that makes sense. Like, I have no deadline. I have no deadline on Anthromancer. The closest sure. thing I have to a deadline is that people gave us Kickstarter money last year, but like it'll be out when it's out. Like, yeah. And as long as I've stayed in that mindset of it'll be out when it's out, that has allowed me to every time I get an idea for some possibility within it, I can put it in. Sure. Why shouldn't I? Why shouldn't I put it in? Because because we've spent a bunch of money on art assets. I mean, that money's gone. Like we spent that money. Um, it's not like it not being out is costing me, 
It's um, sure. and I also know that the the if I see some beauty, like for instance, this game could have been published four years ago. I just would have had to not develop the tarot system around it, or write sure, the mythology sure. that goes along with it, or sure. record the concept album that that correlates to all the things in it. Like I would have just had to make it just the board game. But you sit there, and and I'll just be sitting there. Maybe I'm high. Maybe I'm not. And I'll just be sitting there thinking about what it is and what it could be and some idea, like because of a TV show I watched or a book I read or a game I played, just spark. Yep. I'm like, oh, oh, if I make the game around a deck of cards, I could also turn it into a tarot system. And once you have that idea, it's like you've just made it twice as dope. Like you've just, you've just <laughs> realized that this thing is twice as valuable culturally as it could be. Sure. Like as and in a sense, in a sense, that is there is an aspect of service to that of like trying to condense as much value as I can sure. into one product so that the person that buys it gets the most for it. Sure. But there's also a lot of the a lot of sort of creative liberation that comes from letting myself do that, not yeah. letting that other voice that says, no, dude, you're, you're overcomplicating it. You're making it too much. You're, you're making it too weird. Nobody's going to buy it. It's like. Honestly, I think people are more looking at how saturated the board game market is and how many people do just make games just cuz yeah, sure. it's fine, you know, like I don't want to like crap on anybody's creativity, but it's like the stuff that I take with me for the rest of my life that is not just a t-shirt with a logo on it or a game that's going to sit on a shelf and gather dust is something that is digging as deep as it can to say something, sure. do something to get sure. to make to make its value take its value from being just like a recreational device into the spiritual realm make it something that yeah. you take and you remember for the rest of your life because of what it showed you or how it made you feel or the experiences it let you unlock with your loved ones or whatever it just becomes this artifact that matters rather than just stuff rather than just a commodity rather than just a product you made to make a profit yeah i think a lot of people are afraid to embrace the idea that like creation is inherently gestational right like you are making something and you think like i've got boxes to check off and then when i've checked those boxes off it's done and then it's done so you get into this thought process of like trying to eliminate superfluousness or like trying to eliminate like your ability to just continue iterating on it. And I think mm -hmm. that like the fear that things take time uh, keeps people from allowing creation to be gestational. And what I mean by that is like when a, when a, my, my wife and I just had a baby on Christmas, poor kid's going to fucking hate his birthday when he turns like 10 and realizes none of his friends can come over on his birthday, but that's fine. Congratulations. Thank you. <laughs> but like when when that baby was gestating, there weren't the sure your body like has boxes it checks, right? But for us on the outside, it was a process that built and then when it was done, two days after the quote due date, her body was like, Cool, okay, it's done now. Don't need to add anything else, it's done. And I think a lot of creation for at least me and many people I've interacted with is like I'm making a thing. And they're like, when will it be done? And I go, <laughs> when it's fucking done. Yeah. When, because when my body tells me it is. Exactly. When my body goes, all right, this is 
put the put the fucking bow on it and then push it out the door. Now it's done. It's finished. Uh, and like getting to that point is kind of why art is also like very difficult because it's telling yourself and your brain that's constantly like, aren't you done yet? Aren't you done yet? It's telling that voice in your head to shut up and allow the art itself to tell you I'm done. And then well, you go, ah, it, cool. Done. I think it's, it's interesting that you, that you said that art is very difficult because of that, because I would actually say the opposite. I'd say art is easy as long as you understand that a lot of what it is, the only thing it really is, is shutting that voice up. Well, sure, yeah, <laughs> sure. That's, and that's all you have to do. All you have to do is shut that voice up and, and, and don't go into it for money, I guess. Yeah. The money is a secondary thing. The money is, I would say, it, 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 the ability to make a profit on a product depends in large part on how much value that product provides to people. And because the nature of art is such that the value of art is that it makes people feel things, get your little capitalist out of your brain. Yeah, you cannot it. make it for the sake of money because that's just not how it's going to work. Right. <laughs> yeah, I've uh, I've always, like with Nerdy Bits, the blog that I run, um, I've always wanted it to be a thing that I've made that I personally needed to make which is very artistic in a, in a, as an endeavor and like often is confusing to talk, to talk about because it's a game blog and like people have points on a chart that they can look at and go, well, there's IGN and there's Polygon and there's Vice and there's yada yada. I know what you said and I know what you said and how that relates to other things. But like on a deeper level, it's also like, I want to tell stories about why the stories told to me in games have impacted me. Or how this game created a sandbox that allowed me, my uncle, my grandmother, and my mother to like all interact on a sailboat and have this crazy experience. And like that, telling that story well is artistic to me. Mm -hmm. And like Absolutely. you can see when, especially when it comes to like blogging, you can see when something is made because they need to get numbers up. And you see something is when something is made because the person who made it needed to needed to make it. Mm -hmm. And those two different things are my biggest differentiator. I want to permanently find myself in the latter because mm -hmm. I would much rather make three, write three big articles a year, but each one have people message me back and say they're moved to tears than like make 50 things a year and nobody ever say anything to me. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like I'd much rather pour my soul into something once and then go, okay, people love that. Then like manufacture something mm -hmm. for the sake of it increasing some kind of worth. <laughs> right. Well, it's, it's, it's the, it's just profit incentive. It's just, it, it, there's no point. There's no point at the end of the day. If it's just for money, it's like, Money is supposed to money is supposed to be a means to an end, right? And what sure. is the end? The end is what you're really after. The end is like the only reason people want money is so that they can like look after themselves. Right. You know? Like even the people even the wealthiest people in the world who have like completely lost their minds to the compulsive accumulation of wealth, I think at the very bottom of that chain, that, that chain of thoughts that enables somebody like that is just a scared person that is afraid of not having enough. I think that might be at the top of the chain, honestly, right? Like that, maybe that's what fuels that accumulation is that they're constantly like, it's not enough yet. It's not enough yet. 
Well, yeah, I mean, I guess I, I say it's at the bottom because I feel like it's it's a it's a deep spiritual existential. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. At the um, core. Do you know uh, what's the guy's name? I don't. Th- he's not the original Rockefeller, but he's like the the heir to the Rockefeller fortune. He, I, I think of him a lot because there's a photo of his face and he looks super fucked up and old. Uh, he died a couple years ago, and it, his death. There's a news article that stood out to me. I think I mentioned this to you before because I was talking about how like how crazy it is to me that this dude had seven heart transplants in his life. And that to me, Oof. that is all the evidence you need that that person is driven by just unimaginable Fear. amounts of fear. It's, yeah, yeah, sure. Just his body was just underneath monumental levels of stress. So much so that he was just churning through organs. <laughs> Fuck. Yeah, organs that could have saved somebody else's life. Yikes. Yeah, yeah, and that's that. That I think is is a perfect sort of. It perfectly encompasses the madness that's sort of at the at the core of a lot of this stuff, where people. And you were mentioning that you had an interview with somebody talking about game crunch. Yeah. And like, it destroys the companies that do it, and they keep doing it. Because the people on the top are getting these short-term profits, but they're just eating everything and destabilizing their business ecosystems and churning through talent and making people burned out and never want to be in the industry again. And then yeah. a company like fucking Supergiant come along and make a game that just wins all the awards. Just scoops them up. Just mm. <laughs> And every single person that works on that game is like a celebrity game developer now because they're all really good at their jobs. You can yeah. tell they loved working on it. They poured themselves into it, and they had all the resources they needed to do it. They did early access, right? So something else that when you were mentioned, you mentioned about your your child being born, and how like, yep, birth time, it's done. It's not done, right? Like, right. No, he's in, he's kid. effectively in beta right now. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. And 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 human be we are all human processes that are just sort of like. Once once Anthromancer is published, it's not done. No. Now yeah. it's out there. Now it's being played by people. Now people are, are reflecting what it means to them. And I find I am finding out. I, I will never find out what it really is until the world tells me what it is. Sure. Yeah. And people yeah. build communities around it or not, or people come up with new games they can play with it, or people connect with me about philosophical crap, and and all of these things are are. It's just this web of unmarked possibilities i have no idea how many there even are it's basically infinite yeah and it's like having a kid it's something like once that human comes out it's like now every single experience that goes into that kid's eye holes and ear holes changes what that brain is doing yeah yeah 100 like, they're gonna do something someday with all that shit <laughs> exactly and yeah it's the it's the it's the reason why when like a, a big game comes out and it's covered in bugs and people get pissy about it, I'm always like, dude, fucking chill. Like, 300 people made this. Or, in other cases, 30 people made this. And no matter what, you can't <clears throat> adequately test a game to prevent the million of people, the million people who play it, or the thousand people who play it, you can't predict what they're going to run into. Mm-hmm. So when, like, a, a game comes out and it's buggy, I'm like, cool, I'll just deal with it, or I'll wait. It's fine. Yeah. There's no reason to get bent out of shape about it, though, because, like, art is a fucking iterative. <laughs> like, it happens. It is now, right? Digital digital entertainment is, is iterative. Not even digital, just entertainment is iterative now. So that, like, a thing comes out 
and you go, oh, huh, all right, well, this didn't work. Let's fix this. Or when these people did this thing, it caused one thing that did work to no longer work, and we have mm-hmm. to fix that. And that's just kind of how these very complex moving systems work. And mm-hmm. I, yeah, there's like the whole cyberpunk fiasco that was so huge in November and December was like, at one point, yeah, the company fucked up, the, the leaders of the company fucked up by like hiding what it was that was the problem. But that was like, really their sin. Yeah, but like the creators were making a thing that had just a scope that was beyond their ability to attain it in the timeline they were given. Right. And if people had just calmed the fuck down and let them push it again, or if their leadership, who was worried about their their shareholders, if they could have just like pushed it a little bit, it would have come out and it would have been fine. And that game, I've played through that game at this point, and I had a relatively interference-free experience. And it was... A good Fallout game. <laughs> like that was the end. I was like, okay, cool. Like it wasn't world changing, but that's fine. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I uh, I've I've never understood the like the the push for people to like force things out, and then once they're out and they're not perfect, to be angry at it. It's just mm-hmm. no. I I put a thing out into the world, and you're gonna tell me how finished it is. Right. Humans well, don't hit 1.0 until 25, <laughs> sometimes 30. <laughs> like, humans don't hit their, like, I'm on my own 1.0 launch. They're in early access for fucking 25 years <laughs> learning. I, I, turned, uh, I turned 31 yesterday, and I feel like I'm every single day, I'm like, oh, now I'm in 1.0. No. <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I did a thing uh, a couple years ago where I was like, I, I, for some reason I got on some investigative terror looking at like the average age people are when they buy their first house, the average age people are when they make their first big career decision, the average age people are when they get married, right? And like me, and I was what, 25 at that time, um, 29 now. So like my brain then though was like, yo, you're a fuck up. (laughs) And then I did this research and looked into it and it was like, first of all, like puberty doesn't fully end. Brain development doesn't fully end until like 24, 25. I have already been lied to for most of my life because that was told I was an adult at 18. Nope. Your brain, your body's still literally growing until 25. And then the second thing was that like the average age people are when they buy a house, it's like 33. And I was like, oh, wait, what? The average age people are when they get make their first big career decision in a job is also like 33. So I was like, either everyone's fuck-ups or the assumption that once you graduate from college, you should figure shit out is just setting people up to fucking lose. And worse than that, setting them up to fucking hate themselves. Because, like... To to doubt their ability to do new things. Yeah. Because when you... If you look at the alternate... Not the alternate facts. Gross. (laughs) If you look at the, the actual data, it's that, like... No, from like age 22 to 32, you're basically just kind of throwing shit at a wall and trying to find out what stays there. Mm-hmm. And then it's it's not just one wall. <laughs> you then find what stays there and take that off and then throw it at another wall and see what stays then. And you just keep doing that until you finally figure out your, your groove. Imagine how different kids' lives would be if they didn't think that they needed to have shit figured out until they were 30. 
Pro profoundly. Oh, <laughs> Wildly don't, different. Don't get me started on... Don't don't get me started. <laughs> don't yeah, do it, I kitty. Could, I, could go, I, I basically carry around a ball of rage that I don't think is ever going to go away for uh, just the conventional education system in general. Sure. Because, yep. like... It sucks, dude. It's a system built to pump out people that will comply with 9 to 5 work days, 5 days a week. And the 9 to 5 work day was only created because people went, I guess we couldn't put, we can't put kids in sweatshops anymore. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't made to benefit people. It was made because they had to. <laughs> so mm -hmm. it's not great. Another country's like, we are, our work week's 30 hours and uh, four days in the office now, no longer five. And people are like, fuck you, it's not going to work. And then that country's like, happiness goes through the fucking roof and i'm like oh, they're yeah, perfect and weird. they're completely productive and everything's yeah. fine and yeah you know. weird you don't have to work yourself to death and live for weekends and evenings well and i think what's so offensive to me about all just all that just all those cultural messages is it's it's, it's coming back to what we're talking about with these with art i mean like in a lot of case, in a lot of senses certainly since i've worked on anthromancer this this has been more cemented in my brain like to be a human is to be an artist engaged in the act of creating reality. Sure. We are all creating our own and the realities of other people together. And we know as artists that our art is better and more satisfying and more fulfilling and more true when it is allowed to direct itself, when it's allowed to come out of us organically without really any concern for the the rigid structures that we want to impose on it so we can milk right. some wealth out of it. Right. And human beings are the exact same way. If you just like I if you just let kids I mean you you guide them. You got to guide them. Yeah. But yeah. I mean even that like a lot of the guidance you have to give to kids is so that they can understand how to navigate a world that is at odds with their nature. Yeah. Yeah. You have to teach them how to behave in a world that is going to expect them to pay taxes and listen to the government and listen to the police and, you know, like all these things that are just – these are all just side effects yeah. of this fucked up way of looking at the world. And then you end up with a whole – of kids that are coming out of high school miserably depressed. <laughs> sad. So sad. Like it sucks. Like what? Just mm. undirected – uh, and 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 unproductive in the sense that the 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 giant irony of this this thing is that like good art sells, good ideas change things for the better. Good ideas provide value to yeah. everyone. Yeah. And our, just because of the way we do it, we just we just basically take all the you know when when I mentioned you know Anthromancer has this infinite potential. I don't know what'll happen. It's got all these tendrils going off into the future that that they could be anything right what we do with the way we approach art and and education and child rearing and all that is we take that infinite tendril basket and we just chop it off we just say no you're this you're this one root this is what you are you are a productive citizen and it's like dude look at what that could have been look <laughs> at what we could have invented what were the relationships and the ideas and the the changes and the, the new ways of looking and the the cool ass symphonies and the weird cars and all the things. Yeah, yeah. We're just doing it to millions of kids every single year, like clockwork. <laughs> For generations, we've been doing this, and it's like yeah. whoever I would I want to 
punch the Rockefellers in the face. <laughs> they, they all deserve it. That's why, I, that's why I love the internet. Because, like, there's a lot of people that don't go to college anymore. I think that's great. But there's a lot of people that also do a ton of fucking learning through the internet. And yes, the I think a parent's most important job is not to teach their kids facts, but to teach their kids how to discern facts, critical mm-hmm. thinking. Um, yes, it takes critical thinking to be able to learn from the internet because it's also full of bullshit and cat videos. I would argue there's more bullshit than truth. Yeah, the, and a lot of the truth that you find still is oftentimes subjective. Uh, presented in a bullshit way. Or presented in a bullshit way. Yeah, sure. Um, but yeah, like teaching people to be discerning and then letting those discerning people then go into a world that's full of things that lack discernment is how you fix a system that's it seems relatively inherently broken is you just put a bunch of people around it that are able to see broken shit for what it is and then they go, oh, that doesn't work. And you don't get the people Let that me are stop like <laughs> wasting my energy on it. Yeah, it just doesn't. It's not. It's not. A, it's not a thing. I don't know what you said, but a minute ago, it's not a thing. I don't know what you said, but a minute ago, it reminded me of a Toni Morrison quote that I fucking love. That's we die. That may be the meaning of life, but we do language, and that may be the measure of our lives. Interesting. And just language. the just the idea that like our interaction through speech and writing and creation of ideas storytelling is like what creates myth which is what creates inspiration which is what creates creation which is what create you know what i mean it's just a so i i think um first how long do these usually go on Normally about ninety minutes, so we're about there. Okay, I, we I gave us, yeah, we, yeah, we, we'll make this our like bookend because it's, it's sounding okay, like we'll, it's going to be a very good bookend. So yeah, because what you just said, what you just said, I was like, oh, it's callback, callback. I got to find it. We got, we got callback. Do it, do it, do it. So I was, t- I, there close was, the loop. When I was talking about NFTs earlier, and I feel like I didn't get because the the camera lapsed. I didn't get to to get to like my my thesis, like the thing yeah, I learned. Sure, me understand what the hell the point was, and what you just said is kind of the point like the measure of our lives is language the measure of our lives is the stories we tell like what everything everything is storytelling everything we do that gives us value outside of the the raw materials needed to sustain life once you've got your food and your house and you know you're you're like at that point it's just socializing it's just talking to each other and talking to each other about what we care about what we think about if you get bored enough, you think, let's come up with a story. Let's think about some fucking elves in Rivendell or something. You know, like, let's invent things. <laughs> You're a huge nowhere. fucking nerd. You come and, up with their language, too. <laughs> and, 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 and create, and let's create paintings, and let's create art. And then let's create experiences together around experiencing that art. And so that's where I realized what's going on with NFTs. Because, like, rich people bragging about owning it doesn't make sense. Uh, locking it in a blockchain for security reasons doesn't make sense. You can duplicate right. it forever. So where the hell is the value coming from? And is this just a fad or is it going to be something really valuable? I think it's going to be something profoundly valuable because we. the last thing I think I mentioned was that the Ethereum blockchain, this network, has the potential to exist for thousands of years because yep. it doesn't need any one institution to remain solvent in order to survive. So when I 
invented the world's first pancake art NFT. <laughs> I started a story and yeah. encoded it on a thing that'll last for thousands of years. When somebody comes along and buys that, what they're paying for, really, more than anything else, is the hard-coded, thousands of years old verification that they were a part of this artist's story. They gave me funding. They bound themselves to me in an, a book that will last for thousands of years Yeah. and got me paid. And if they sell it to somebody else, I'm going to get a royalty off of it. And then the, the piece of art moves through people and you start to be able to go and look at it and see the story. You can yeah. see it was made by this person at this point. They sold it to this person at this point for this much. Then that person sold it to this point. I wonder what's going on. Did these people hang in? Yeah. All kinds of human social capital that exists because of the nature of the blockchain technology that, that makes it so that you don't have to, so that you can't fake it. You can't fake right. it. Somebody bought it and it's right there. You can yep. see it. It's right there. That's it's it. on you there. Can you follow can it. it. Yeah. And once that all connected to me, I was like, okay, I, I don't think NFTs are a thing. I think <laughs> NFTs sure. are going to be a thing that lasts for a long time. And I think think that even though I'm charging one Ethereum for this pancake, I think somebody's going to pay for it. I think there's going to be somebody that happens to have an Ethereum token that, especially if I keep telling this story, if I keep going on podcasts and shit yeah, and talking sure, about it, sure. at some point, somebody that's just sitting on a thousand because they got into Ethereum early enough is just going to be like, yeah, yeah, fuck it, why not? And I'm going to have an Ethereum and it's gonna, I'm going to buy food with it probably. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, and that's... Uh, yeah, that it was sort of like when I when I when I figured that out, when I made that connection, I stopped feeling like I was working with something I don't understand. You know, I felt like, yeah. ah, that actually makes sense. That actually makes yep. sense. That that is not flim flam. That actually feels like, oh, I can see the logic and why that would be. And so, it's yeah, it's just part so, one to a new way of telling stories. Yeah, it's cool shit. It's fucking. I think cool everybody shit. should look into it, and I, and I think everybody should learn. Um, you know, the stuff we're talking about with education and stuff, like don't let the system convince you that you're not smart enough to figure this stuff out because you are. And exactly. if you do, you, the sooner you, the sooner you do figure it out and start looking into this world, the more rewarding it will be. Exactly. Yeah. Bookend. Thump. You just said you should look into and learn things, but if people wanted to look into and learn about you... Where would they find you? They can find the, probably the easiest way to connect with me as a person is my Twitter account, Daniel. Uh, it's at Daniel J Drake. Um, you can also find me on Instagram, Daniel James Drake. And if you're looking for my pancake art stuff, that's Dan Cakes. You can find Dan Cakes on all major social media platforms. And if you're looking for, inf for more information about Anthromancer, it's Anthromancer. You can go to Anthromancer.com and learn about what the board game is. Uh, you can actually still pre-order it. Um, through backer kit it's been the pre-order has been going on for a while but we're i'm basically finalizing assets for the codex this week i hope and then we send them off to get manufactured and so that process is going to take like nine months but hey hey now's your chance get you get you a first edition copy of hop on board with the last uh, train yeah 
<laughs> yeah, before I become crypto boy. <laughs> why, why did we both turn into like New Yorker train conductors? <laughs> Fucking hop in and uh, do it, you know, it's the thing. That's uh, that's just how it goes. That's business. <laughs> the showbiz, kid. Ah, I love it. Well, thanks for thanks for coming on and talking about all the things we talked about. Uh, it was fucking yeah. dope. You and I, it's it's cool to. I feel like every the, we haven't like hung out and talked that many times, but every time we have, it's basically been like this. Yeah, and it's so like cool to be able. To it's like pick up that. and run with about anything we want to talk about. It's fucking great. Yeah. It's fucking great. It's good to have friends like that. Um, I agree. Again, thank you. Uh, if you want to follow anything that. We do on Nerdy Bits at NerdyBits.com. You can find me at LubWub. Uh, and in closing, uh, use our favorite, my favorite, Dr. Seuss quote about doing things. If you never did, you should. These things are fun, and fun is good. Peace.